yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast, radio broadcast, and general social irritant. Produced by Magic Matt Allen, I am the legendary Burl Bearer, the guy there, our fact checker and co-host. What's his name? Oh, yeah, Mark, Mark. Boyer. Yeah, thanks. Hi, Mark. Today, boy, we've got a story for you. Oh, my God. William J. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, your book, All Along the Watchtower. Uh, with your permission, I'm going to read uh, a paragraph here. Yes, go ahead. It was a dreary winter afternoon in Ayer, Massachusetts, a quintessential New England town, the type of romanticized in uh, Robert Frost poems. But on January 30th, 1979, a woman's screams were heard piercing the northeast tempest wind. In an unassuming apartment building on Washington Street, Elaine Tyree, mother, wife, U.S. Army soldier, had her life brutally ripped from her. Her husband, William Tyree, a Special Forces soldier, was convicted of this heinous murder, which he has always vehemently denied, and for damn good reason. This is the type of case that makes me terrified to ever be charged with anything more than a traffic ticket. In fact, this case is so complex and so astounding. I'm going to ask you right now, uh, William J. Craig, would you be willing to do this in two parts because there's so much to cover? Could you do half of it this week and come back next week and do more? No problem at all. Because it's a hell of a book. All Along the Watchtower is the name of it. And... uh, Mark C.G. Boyer has got a ton of questions for you. Uh, why don't you give us, go ahead and just start the way you'd like to start. Give us the background on this case. Okay. Um, Ty, William Tyree was a U.S. Army soldier. He joined the Army in 1975. And um, from there, he served for about two years. Well, two years, and he got a hardship discharge. He returns to Utah to his family. He meets a group of guys that were stationed down the uh, street from his parents' house, and uh, these group of guys are with uh, 10th Special Forces Group out of Fort Evans. At that point, he um, starts talking to them about training and stuff, and they said, well, you're 82nd Airborne. If you decide to re-enlist, you know, they uh, come find us. We're always looking for a good guy. And uh, he joins them. And from there, it's, he goes back to uh, goes back in the Army. He's at Fort Lee, Virginia. He has a little wooden romance with uh, Lane Webb. I mean, Hebrow, I'm sorry. And uh, within three months, they're married. He stationed at uh, Fort Devons at that point with 10th Special Forces Group, and he's still at Fort Lee, Virginia. And at this time, Fort Devons is, uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing to say, but uh, there was a lot of crime going on. Um, you remember, this was shortly after Vietnam, so you still had a lot of uh, the draft draftees in there and stuff. These are guys who were more or less told, you know, uh, four years in the Army or, you know, 
two years in prison or yeah, more. Their choice. They choose. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, so, Ward Gunn's was more or less set up as you had the administrative uh, division that did the housekeeping services for three major groups. It was 10th Group Special Forces, there was 39th Engineer Battalion, and then there was uh, Army Security Agency School, uh, the spies, spooks, whatever you want to call them. And um, the military intel end of the spy school worked very closely with 10th Group. Um, at the time, Bill Kyrie arrives at Fort Devens. Uh, the Colonel Shakavili, who was the brother of General John Shakavili, who later was the uh, Joint Chairman Chief of Staff on the Clinton. All right. And now, this, uh, I got to ask this Tyree guy, our main character here, was what was his reputation? Was he known as a stand-up guy, a reliable guy? He was known as someone who seemed to have more training, knew more than he should have at his pay grade. So he knew what was going on. He was on the ball then. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Squared away soldier. Uh, at the time he was in, in with the 10th group, everybody wore the Green Beret and the, whether you were supply personnel or an actual Green Beret soldier, but he had the uh, full flash qualified, which was a little badge that went on the uh, right near the crest on the beret. So he was a full fledged Green Beret. In other words, this guy's not some slump. <laughs> no, he, no, he wasn't. Uh, you know, hitting no toilet paper or, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. Top of the line. Here. We're talking top of the line. Correct. And uh, from that point, he. Gets involved with a group of guys, and a lot of these guys are doing questionable things at the time. Questionable as uh, in authorized by our friendly federal government or not? Um, authorized by no one, uh, more or less. There's an old saying in the Army, gear adrift must be a gift. So there's a lot of... Uh, they were grabbing uh, star clusters and blowing out windows to bars, things like that. They, they, the locals, you know, they had a fight with the locals, so they trying to scare people, things like that. Gotcha. And um, from that point, when uh, General Shakavili steps down from 10th Group, the guy that takes over is a uh, colonel by the name of Colonel, uh, colonel Cotolo. And Colonel Cotolo was a West Point graduate. He was, uh, his style was on the rise, so to speak. And he knew Bill from Bill's previous enlistment. Uh, he was in charge of Operation Watchtower in 75 and 76. Okay, now here I gotta jump in because the book is called All Along the Watchtower. So I figured whatever Watchtower is, it plays a role in the story. What was Operation Watchtower? Operation Watchtower was a uh, covert operation, black ops operation, and the U.S. government was supplying uh, special forces guys that went down to 
Panama, and they were sending guys, they were third, uh, more or less uh, fire support teams that they were flying over to Colombia, and these so fire support teams were setting up balconies, I'm sorry, not balconies, beacons rather, that would uh, allow planes to travel from Colombia to Panama undetected on radar. Oh, that was nice. And the planes were loaded with cocaine. That's even better. And this is the same cocaine that later was brought from Panama and stored in Mena, Arkansas, and was supplied the crack epidemic of the 80s. Well, everything certainly ties together nicely when we look at history. So we... Right. <laughs> I bet our friend Freeway Ricky Ross would enjoy this program. Uh, Did this have anything to do with Air America? Um, Excuse me? uh, He wanted to know if it had anything to do with Air America. Same sort of concept. Same concept, uh, just not... um, The triangle there... Most of the heroin came from with Air America. Obviously, Indochina fell under communist rule at the end of Vietnam, so they had to have a new supply, and they wanted to keep the uh, South American uh, countries more or less friendly to America. And this had to do with more had to do with the um, Iran Contra affair. Okay, it started all. Everything's interrelated here. <laughs> what did uh, what was America supposed to get in return for the trafficking? A friendly government. Yeah, well, what that was, they could what deal, was, uh, that the they could deal with. The U.S. government. Yeah, what was the benefit to the government of doing this? They would have a more or less prop up a regime that was friendly, and that they could they would know how to handle and keep the Russians out. Gotcha. Okay, so uh, the uh, Operation Watchtower, uh, Tyree was in on that, and his superior... Right, he was pulled. he was pulled from that, he was 82nd Airborne in his first enlistment, and uh, he was given orders to report to Pope Air Force Base on the green ramp, and with his mobility bag, and they boarded a plane, and after several stops, he lands in Panama, and he's debriefed and told that He's going to be uh, in charge of a, one of the Hueys as a crew chief. He goes out to look at the bird, and it comes back that the he's looking around. He notices there's no nomenclature plates, which would show that this uh, helicopter belonged to the U.S. government. Right. And he notices that there's live ammo, and he starts to more ask around an indirect way to the other guys, what's going on? And the guy tells him, Tyree, you think it's raining, but the big guy, he goes, but the big dog's peeing on you. <laughs> he goes, you, you don't, you're on a need to know basis, but let's put it this way. If you're here, do, shut your mouth, do as you're told, your career is more or less set. And he, so he begins to 
figure out what's going on and goes along with it. And then the first time he realized something was a little off after the nomenclature plate missing and everything was when they uh, went to extract these guys from the jungle. And the guy comes running from the tree line and grabs Tyree and says, anybody comes from this, from that area over here, light it up. And he's like, okay, so we're not supposed to be here. <laughs> That's yeah. when he figures... There's okay, something um, shady going on. Right. And um, when he does uh, process out of the army the first time, a buddy of his says, you know, where have you been for the... You've been stationed at Bragg, but we haven't seen you for more than three months. That was it. And you've been here, you've been over, you've been here for over a year. And he goes, oh, uh, I was over here uh, TDY, and I was there, and this guy's brother had actually seen him over in Panama. And he goes, oh, you're stateside. Yeah, okay. Because he signs uh, non-disclosure agreements and everything. Right, right. So now that he's at Devons and Cotolo takes over, Cotolo gets orders from above that there's a possible leak about Watchtower. Uh-oh. So he talks, he knows Bill personally and from Watchtower and stuff, so he tells Bill, I have, because right now Bill's working in supply, and he's told uh, basically to Keep work with each other these SAT teams, and we're going to start listening in on different people in the government and the state of Massachusetts. We want to make sure that nothing about Watchtower is being leaked. So Bill's now married, his wife gets stationed at Devon's, his wife is just a regular army soldier, she's with the uh, administrative end of things, and she's not special forces, she's not tied with uh, tense group at all, and uh, she's working at Bachelor uh, BOQ at the time, and it's like Bachelor Officer Quarters, and she's knowing a little quiet, Meek girl. She's nothing outstanding per se as far as her army career is gone or anything. And uh, she's pregnant now. And she talked to my bill about where are you going? What? Why are you going at three a.m.? You're a you're, you work supply. Hey, you what supply? Cocaine, honey. Just <laughs> don't say anything. <laughs> well. She was known to keep uh, diaries. Uh-oh. And she didn't realize that at the time until, which I, until like maybe the, the last couple of months of her life that she was keeping two sets of diaries. One diary was, oh, the you know, baby smiled today, I did the laundry, went to the right. movies, what have you. The other diary was, all the little tidbits of criminal activity she overheard or saw on oh, post. Well, that's dangerous. That could be dangerous for her. Right. <laughs> dangerous for, for her and for Bill. So, um, so she suddenly is murdered, most foul. Oh, wait, we haven't gotten there yet. Oh, we haven't got there yet? Right. Oh, it, it hasn't, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, keep so, going. So she's keeping two sets of diaries. Bill has no idea what's going on. 
and she's writing about things like um, there was a officer who was burning target folders. He was in uh, 441st Military Intel uh, Detachment. And the target folders were, I guess he was selling them to the Russians. And uh, he knew he was about to get caught. He starts burning them in his room. And the military doesn't prosecute him, though. Mm-hmm. They put him in a VA hospital and label him Section 8. And these guys never heard from again. Amazing. And another soldier was uh, was selling M16s. Uh, there was so much crime. There was such a crime wave on this post at this time that there were even two 18-wheeler trucks that flew the gear that just disappeared. Oh, jeez. And there was also the um, I don't know if you're how familiar you are with. Uh, Wendy Bulger. Yeah. And the Valhalla incident where there was a boatload of uh, weapons that were being sent from South Boston over to Northern Ireland. Yep. A lot of those weapons came out of Fort Devens. That's um, just it, incredible. Everything's connected. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, he, she's writing all this down. And it could be anywhere from somebody who's loan sharking to, like I said, the target folders. Um, how did how did the outside find out she was keeping the second diary? Well, it came out to one of Bill's friends, to I believe it was his girlfriend, and that's how Bill originally found out about it. And Bill's like, what are you doing? This is insane. And you're gonna, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get in a lot of trouble here. And some of these people we know, they're friends, they're, you know, they've been over the house. I don't wanna get implicated in this. And she's like, well, I don't know why I do it. It's just, it's relaxing, but, it's not too relaxing. Right. I mean, it's relaxing for It's life-threatening right. and relaxing simultaneously. Right. So, at that point, Bill gets, like I said, is very upset about it. And it gets leaked to one of Bill's friends who, um, she, Elaine didn't care for him. He, this guy was Earl Michael Peters. He was a country bumpkin he came across anyway as a country bumpkin and uh, avid hunter, fisherman but at the same time she felt there was something a lot more shady about it and she didn't really trust him and didn't care for him so Bill starts to distance himself right. uh, by this point the baby's on the way Bill decides he can't, Belaine thinks he's cheating at first and of course that wasn't the case. And so he tells her, I'm on this Operation Orwell. And she goes, well, I need you here for the baby. So he's like, all right. He goes into Colonel Cotolo's office and tells him he wants out. Cotolo immediately becomes suspicious. Now Bill's a liability. He goes from being a nominated for soldier of the quarter and it, it, his career's on the rise to like 
now you're blackballed. They send them over to military, reassigns them to the 441st military intel division. And at this time, a guy that was heavily under suspicion for theft got caught on post with stolen stuff in his trunk of his car. It was told by the Army, we will give you a bad conduct discharge or accuse Tyree of selling mil stolen military equipment and we'll get you an administrative discharge. So, with, uh, this guy Peterson, excuse me? No, I was just listening intently. Oh, okay, so this guy Peterson decides, okay, I want the administrative discharge. He goes up to a known drug addict that's in 10th group, he works in the rigger shack packing parachutes by the name of Eric Harris. Harris is a little guy, about 5'2", and a schoolway soldier during the day, but a complete mess on, a, on his own time. And he's known for doing anything for money. So he said that Harris, so he says Harris, he goes, I'll give you 20 bucks. Go to CID, sign a paper, accused Bill of, you know, selling you some stolen right. equipment. So Iris does. Next thing you know, Bill's looking at a bad conduct discharge. He's Iris probably upset. Yeah, he goes from, he goes from being top soldier to, a, a, you know, a common thief. So, at this point, it, He's nervous, he doesn't know what's gonna happen. Iris has a change of heart and goes back to CID after Peterson gets discharged from the army and is off post and he's safe. He goes, Iris goes up to CID and says, I recant my statement. He hmm. Bill didn't sell me anything. So Bill is now offered a Article 15 What's and that? he says, well, think about it. And the Article 15 is more or less a slap on the wrist, reduction in pay. Yeah, it's a, rather than go for a court, full court marshal, they'll handle it, you know, in-house. Gotcha. And Bill says, well, think about it. Cattolo tells him, it is in your best interest to do this. Mm-hmm. Bill signs the paper, and his lawyer tells him, don't worry about it, we'll appeal it. Base commander will take care of it, not a problem. Around this time, Bill and Elaine start to receive threatening phone calls. They tell you, like, um, watch your step, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna die, things like that. Yeah, those are encouraging words to hear, no doubt, in the middle of the night. Right. <laughs> and uh, Bill tells his parents out, uh, back in Utah. And his dad was a master sergeant in the Army, retired. And his father starts getting a little nervous, so he gets in touch with the Utah Senator, uh, Senator Gunn. Gunn starts an investigation into 
the bad conduct discharge, the uh, now Article 15, and the threats. And around this time, Earl Michael Peters discuss, he happens to be over Bill and Elaine's house, and he discovers that she has these diaries. And Bill's driving him back to post later that evening, and Peters tells him, you know, people with those types of diaries usually end up with their throat sweat. Oh, wonderful. So... Now Bill's on the fence, like, he gets home, he's like, you gotta get rid of these, this is no good. And she tells him, well, I got these diaries and I really wanna turn them into CID. But I process out of the army. So Bill's like, well, you gotta get them out of the house anyway. We'll talk about it. Now it's November of uh, 78. Their daughter's born. Bill's ecstatic. He's home with the baby and he just goes to work every day at supply and and, I'm sorry, military intel. And while he's got the Article 15 pending, he's given a a letter of uh, I guess you would say like an honorary letter of uh, he did a good job type thing on the fact that he developed a plan for target folders and so forth that with 10th group mm-hmm. which is highly unusual that a guy who has had his full flash police on him at this point he's under investigation by CID and he's put in a position where he's around military intelligence and he's begin, being given these uh, letters of commendation. Interesting so balance. Right, something's not quite... It doesn't fit. Quite right. <laughs> but he figures, you know, his dad was in the army, he knows how it goes. Every once in a while, you. You come across somebody who's, you know, got it in for you, but ride it out and things will get better. Mm-hmm. So now he, uh, he's got the daughter, everything's going good. And it, which brings us to January of 79. And Elaine's getting ready to process out of the army. And they go and they order some more life insurance because they got the baby. And he's talking to Elaine, and he says to Elaine, do you want to go back to Utah until my enlistment's up, and then I'll meet you back there? Do you want to stay with me? What what do you want to do? And she says, well, I want to stay here with you. So her last week in the Army, she's reading every day on post for lunch. And at that point, she... uh, on January 30th, 1979, it was a Tuesday, Bill says to Elaine, you know, picks her up for lunch, where do you want to go eat? She goes, well, I got to go back to the house. I got to get my uniforms, my extra uniforms and turn them in. 
So Bill says, well, all right, I'll swing you by the house, and then I actually got to go drop off uh, some typewriters at uh, MID, and I'll just give me a call. You know, I'll call you if I don't hear from you. Let me know when you're ready to be picked up. Drops her off in the parking lot, gives her a kiss, drives away, and two minutes later, uh, the upstairs neighbor, Miss Elliott's, hears a scream and she hears Elaine say get out of here get away from me she runs downstairs knocks on the door no answer she calls Air PD they send off uh, Officer Beckett he goes knocks on the door no answer he just happens to look down and he sees a couple of drops of blood mm. so he goes outside the apartment building calls the chief, uh, William Adamson, the air police, uh, police, tells him, I think something's off here. While they're leaving the building, he notices that there's a screen to the apartment that's on the ground that wasn't there when he went in the building. Hmm. He looks in the, he can't see anything. Chief Adamson comes down to the apartment building. At that time, they also called the landlord he comes down, all lots of men, and there's a female soldier on her back, throat slit, in a pool of blood. The apartment's been tossed. Well, and immediately he calls the state police and he calls the off-post liaison of Fort Evans. Off-post liaison shows up, the state police show up, Bill calls the apartment to see if Elaine's ready to be picked up. Chief Adamson tells him there's been uh, an incident in your apartment. Why don't you head over here? Bill jumps in his truck, then Chief Adamson has a, has a change of heart and says, you know what? I really don't want him here at the crime scene. I think he sends one of the officers to go intercept Bill's truck and they take him over to the Air Police Department for interrogation. Hmm. Well, he's going to be in shock when they tell him his wife's just had her throat slit. Right. Once he, he hears all of the information they provided, he's obviously upset. He starts thinking about everything that's been going on. And he notifies... You know, he tells them that, well, there's been an investigation, we're receiving death threats. And uh, he starts his own investigation. The Green Berets are, you know, type A personality, very uh, assertive. And he's like, no offense to the police, but I have a better under knowledge and understanding of what's going on here than they would. Uh, at, uh, at this point in time, has there been any indication there was any trouble in their relationship? None whatsoever. There was never any question of uh, or issue uh, that there there was any unhappiness or she had a wandering eye. None, none of that. Or abuse and no abuse. Or abuse? No, God, no. Never any abuse. Or, he absolutely loved her, and she loved him. How much was the insurance? 
The insurance probably is somewhere in the vicinity of ten to fifteen thousand. Okay, and it was did he make any attempt uh, at this point to collect on it in the near future no. from this point? He never attempted to collect on it. In fact, uh, prior to his arrest, the uh, they were calling him, and he wasn't even interested in it. He, that was the furthest thing from his mind. He didn't have any gambling debts. He didn't have a mistress on the side. There was no indication that you know he was unhappy or this was a marriage like you know. A lot of times, young kids in the military will get married because the more kids you have, the more money you make. There was never any idea or plan of that. There was no no proof whatsoever of any of that. Thanks. Okay, continue. Okay, so. Um, like I said, so now Elaine, uh, Elaine's passed away. They do an autopsy. She's been stabbed in the head several times. The police never, the state or the local police, never once applied for a search warrant on the premises. There, so there's no chain of custody on anything that was taken, no logs of anything that was taken out of that apartment. And Elaine, it comes time to, for Elaine to be buried. She's going to be buried down in Maryland where, where, where her family is. And she, which is another unusual event, but Bill goes down there and Fort Devon sends an honor guard. The honor guard was all special forces and military intel guys. Well, isn't that unusual? She wasn't a special forces soldier, right? So she wasn't. Uh, so it, it should have been a regular army. It should have been post personnel, not tenth group or military intel. And Bill gets drunk while he's down there because he's just at his wit's end, and he's not. He was never a real drinker per se. And he pours about $100 worth of good booze down his throat, and he just loses it at that point. And uh, a couple of guys race up to his room because he's making phone calls saying somebody's after him, and he's just talking real crazy. They take Bill, and they send him off to uh, Walter Reed Army Hospital. With um, I want to say after about seven days of observation, they clear him. They say, obviously, he's just a guy who's been under a lot of stress, and he goes back to Devon's. The whole time, from the day the murder occurred to the time of Bill's arrest, Bill was placed under uh, guard. He has someone following him, staying with him 24-7 while he's on post. He was never once suicidal. Never once made a suicidal comment, gesture. He passed his psyche valve prior to Elaine's death. There was no reason for him to be placed. He wasn't suspicious. He wasn't under suspicion of anything. But he had a guard twenty four seven on him. Mm. They weren't taking any chances. And 
when, uh, like I said, when the police were no- notified of the, uh, off the off-post liaison of the murder, CID was never requested by APD or the state of Massachusetts State Police, but yet the CID officers who were investigating Bill for the Article 15, when they heard about the murder, showed up and offered to assist. How nice of them. And, yeah, exactly. So, at this point, Bill gets back from uh, Walter Reed, and he sits down in January 3rd, I'm sorry, February 13th. He, he sits down at uh, mess hall for breakfast, and Earl Michael Peters comes up to him, who is his guard at this point, and says, you know, I've been thinking about this. Something tells me that whoever killed your wife had plastic on them. That's why they can't find any bloody clothes. And uh, I get a feeling the knife is still wrapped in plastic somewhere on this post. And I think Eric Harris did it. Hmm. At that point, Bill says he knew Peters did it or was somewhat involved in it. Sure, otherwise, why would he say that? Or how would right. he know? <laughs> so, Peters tells him that, so he decides to, later that day at lunch, he goes up to Eric Harris and says, you know, you kind of did me a favor. He goes, I'll tell you what, though, he goes, if that knife is still around, I'll give you 5000 for it from the insurance money, and I'll, I'll dispose of it. I want to make sure it's gone. Harris gets all excited at the thought of money. Right. Now Bill calls up the chief of police and and tells Adamson, oh, I was say, says he can put his hands on the knife. So because they don't have any jurisdiction on post, they decide they make a plan where Tyrese to meet Iris outside the main gate at the Devon Shopping Plaza, and when Tyree puts his windshield wipers on, that means Iris gave him the knife, and they swoop in and arrest Iris. And Bill figures Iris is going to immediately fold on who did it. Right. Well, Iris got himself in a little bit of trouble nobody knew about, and Iris is now on restricted duty and tells Bill, I can't meet with you. So they have to develop a new plan. So now the chief has contacted CID and so forth, and Bill decides to, when he went to talk to Iris to find out, hey, when are you going to have the knife? And now it's like 5, 5, 10, something in that area. And Iris is back in his barracks doing his extra duty. And Iris goes, it's going to take me a little longer than I thought, but I'll get it for you. Bill goes upstairs to Peter's room, and Peter's tells him, Iris is full of it. He's got the knife. I saw it. It was under his jacket. He put it under his pillow. So Bill gets all excited, runs downstairs, and he's waiting for his friend uh, Menzi to pick him up. And him and his girlfriend, Men- uh, Menzi and his girlfriend are going to take Bill to CID. As their point, Bill... As he's waiting for them to pull into the parking lot, Peters comes out and pulls a forty-five out of his jacket and holds it on Bill. Hmm. 
Ray recognizes the gun immediately because he bought it from Peters when they first started getting death threats to give to his wife, Elaine, in case somebody tried to attack her. And Peters says, you know, I didn't want to do it, but my name was in that book. And I uh, can't take that chance. That damn diary. Right. <laughs> So now he goes like, okay, I, you know, I understand. I'll, I'll tell it's all, it's ours, it's ours. Mendy pulls in, Bill jumps in the car. As we're pulling out of the parking lot of uh, the enlisted, uh, off the enlisted quarters, in is pulling, in pulling into the parking lot rather, is CID and the uh, air, uh, police department. Bill gets up to CID, which is probably a five-minute drive on post. Benji says, you've got to tell them, that's it. You're going in there, just tell them everything. Bill goes in there, and the CID agent Brzezinski says, oh, sit right down and write out exactly what happened. As Bill's writing it out, Brzezinski gets on the phone with the uh, post commander, Colonel Richards to get an authorization to search the barracks room. Which is still, to this day, has the notes with the timeline written on it and everything else. And it says it was at five, that, that, that he called them at six o'clock that night. Mm-hmm. The uh, CID and the PD were already, had already gone into the room, found the knife under the pillow wrapped in plastic, and started inventorying all of Iris's possessions and took Iris into custody. That sounds so a little questionable. The, right, there, there's no question that, this, that, the, that the authorization is no good. Fruit of the poison tree dropped the whole thing. <laughs> so now Bill writes his statement out. Brzezinski comes in, reads it, tears it up, and tells him, Peter's never told you this. Alice told you this. God, they keep reinventing reality for this guy. Right. So after about the third time of getting it torn up in his face, Bill figures, I better do as I'm told and write Alice. So he does. Alice is brought in the CID. Bill is placed into custody after that statement's written. Bill's held in custody. This is his first arrest. There, there's two more to follow. Oh, my God. What's well, he charged with? The next morning, depending on the paperwork. Now, well, they, they're holding him. Have they charged him? They they char- they they held him without no reason. Charge? Iris hadn't given, they held him without, with, without reason because Iris hadn't even given a statement yet. I've seen this happen before. It is regrettable, but I've seen people held without charges. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Bill's in custody. Iris is brought in. They start interrogating Iris. Iris says, no, Bill had nothing to do with it. And uh, this has to do with, uh, he starts telling all these tales. And they know he's high as a kite because they just found a footlocker full of drugs in his room. He's never offered a lawyer. 
never offered. Oh God! Uh, never, they never questioned his uh, mentality or you know his sobriety. No fitness or anything. You know. And there's even 18 minutes missing from the from the last from the end of the tape to the tape that begins where he says, "Oh yeah, it was Bill." Little spice splice marks in between the words. But before it, that, we'll, he testifies <laughs> that he had nothing to do with it. Right. He tells him Bill had nothing to do with it the first couple of times and all of a sudden there's eighteen minutes missing and but, oh yeah, Bill did it. Yeah, he and that's eighteen minutes of them beating him or something. <laughs> so now he's placed under arrest. Bill is again arrested. And, and they charged him this time, charged him with murdering his wife when he wasn't even there. Right. <laughs> and he's arrested third, he's, and then on the 14th, he's re-arrested again, and the two of them are sent up to the Ricker House of Correction. They're going to correct the golf swing, but they're going to correct. He didn't kill her in the first place. Right. <laughs> so now he's up in the Ricker waiting to um, his probable cause hearing. And well, if they get in front of a decent judge, the judge is going to throw the whole thing out. What's well, probable cause, not a, uh, yeah. you know. It's, right, it's not, it's not, a, not a, it's a probable cause hearing to see whether or not they should press charges on him. Right. During probable cause, a secret grand jury is selected. Oh, God, a secret grand jury? Who's in charge of that? John Kerry. Chief of police? No, John Kerry was the DA that headed the grand jury. Oh, swell. And so, do you think they have this planned out? Do you think? They, I mean, there's a, it seems to me that someone wants to just shut him up, shut her up, burn the diary. That's exactly what it, what it comes down to. It's it's just. I mean, you couldn't. You can't make this stuff up. No, it's just too bizarre. This is what scares the hell out of me about American justice. They could have just gone to Bill and said, hey, listen, we'll give you $50,000 in a trip to Cancun if you'll burn the damn diary and tell your wife to keep her mouth shut. Right. That would have solved the whole problem. So uh, that the grand jury indictment now, about the second or third day, the judge is uh, Judge Killam. He starts listening to all these witnesses testify. And you got the feeling that the testimony's coached. Ah. So he asked the witness, one of the witnesses, have you been contacted by anybody concerning this case? And the witness goes, oh yeah, Chief Adamson contacted me last night and said, make sure I tell you this, this, and this. <laughs> oh, God. So he has, he has Adamson stand up and he reprimands Adamson in court and tells Adamson, this is, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this. Don't let me catch you again. The next day, another witness comes forward with a similar theme running through their story. And he questions her, and Adamson says, she says, yeah, Adamson told, called me last night again. Okay, now he says, she's Adamson, stand up. He says, do you know where the Bill Ricker House of Correction is? He goes, yeah, I do. He goes, if I have to reprimand you one more time, he goes, you'll be going there in handcuffs. Good. So at that point, the witness tampering stops. About time. Now all Michael, all Michael Peters gets takes the stand. 
And the judge is listening to this and he's saying, something's not right here. He goes, so he starts questioning. He says he wants to question the witness himself. And this judge was so smart. He holds the key. He started to unravel everything right then and there. He starts asking him about how did, uh, how would you gut a deer? Well, you slice the throat, you hang it by the feet, you drain the blood, you, and so forth. And he's getting into all details. And then he's like, okay. He goes, and um, now he's looking for pictures. And he says, well, of the, of the crime scene, he sees the couch. And the couch, he actually had a storage drawer underneath it. And the drawer was open in the picture. And he says, is this where Mr. Tyree said that you stored a, a rifle, a shotgun that you bought because you didn't want to check it in the arms room? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I stored it. And he goes, when did you check that in the arms room? Knowing full well that the arms room was in the barracks the, where Peter stayed, being, having been in the military himself, the judge figured out, you know, these guys probably all know each other. And the head of the arms room is a good friend of Peter's. So all of a sudden he goes, do you have the receipt? And as they're investigating this whole thing down probable cause, it becomes two different serial numbers for the gun. Oh, wonderful. And then- Was either one of them legal? (laughs) He bought it legally up in, I think it was uh, a mall up in New Hampshire and then but he's like, okay, so there's two different numbers. Okay. Well, there's a receipt. Oh, I threw it out. Now it's been over three weeks. All of a sudden, the receipt mysteriously was found in the trash. The Isn't trash that amazing? So he's like, okay. He goes, well, there's a logbook on this. Now, this isn't just some run-of-the-mill leg group of the Army. This is the 10th Special Forces. Well, it's going to be detailed. They're going to be real specific. Right. Every piece of paperwork has to be perfect. Every I has to be dotted. Every T has to be crossed. (laughs) So what did they find? It was all whited out or something? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is obvious to merits during an inspection. And so he's like, okay, now it comes down to the judge's findings. The grand jury came back eight days ago with an indictment. It's never been, it hasn't been released yet. So at this point, Judge Killam says, well, I find that Mr. Tyree is guilty of accessory after the fact and obstruction of justice and the fact that he wasn't forthcoming with the uh, chief of police on everything he knew. Because I find that uh, Mr. Iris is guilty of murder in the first degree obstruction of justice before and after the facts and conspiracy and i want earl michael peters arrested for murder in the first degree conspiracy and uh, obstruction of justice before and after the fact and then the chief of police said yeah and he didn't do it no the chief of police refused well that's part one part one Next week, part two, we'll pick up right where we left off. And it gets even weirder. It gets even crazier, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for coming back to us. All along the Watchtower. Fascinating story. Thank you. By William J. Craig. Buy it, read it, believe it. Part two next week.
A true crime uncensored. VanillaRadioLive.com. Ah, it's next, bro. Magic Bat Allen and the Demons of Decadence. Live from the Lighten Up Lounge. 